Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. Very excited to bring you a special episode where I talked with Jay Warner Wallace about his new book called Person of Interest. Now, what you're going to be hearing is a live stream that we did on YouTube a while back. It was actually on the release day of his book. So you're going to be listening to a lot of interview about what the book's about, some of the uh, challenges to the Christian faith that the book addresses. But you're also going to hear about some giveaways and things like that. I just want to let you know, if you're listening to this on an audio platform, those uh, sort of contests have already passed, so you won't be able to win a book listening live today, but you can still order the book. You can go to Amazon and order Person of Interest by J. Werner Wallace. But I hope that today's podcast will get you excited to possibly order the book and just enrich your knowledge about this person of interest, Jesus Christ. Hey, everyone. Welcome. We're so glad you've joined us for the release party of a book I've been waiting for for a couple of years now. I remember sitting at a dinner with Jay Werner Wallace a couple of years ago talking about some research I had done into some non-historical sources on Jesus, and he said, oh, you haven't even scratched the surface. And he was currently, uh, at the time, working on this book right here, Person of Interest. It is out today. We are so excited. I was so honored to be able to endorse this book. Here's what I wrote about this book. If you read this book, you will have to reckon with Jesus, not just as a historical person, but as Lord and Savior. This is not your typical apologetics book. This is not your typical apologetics book. And I am so excited that we have Jay Warner Wallace with us tonight to talk about this new work that he's been working on for a couple of years, doing tons of research on. Uh, but I want to just get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way first. We're going to take a lot of questions tonight. So if you have a question for Jay Warner Wallace, either on Facebook or on YouTube, write the word question in all caps so that that will get our attention. We'll be able to see that you've got a question for us, and we will try to get to as many of those as we can. We are also going to be giving away not one, not two, not three, 
not four, but five copies of person of interest to those of you who are watching with us live. So this is really important. If you want to be eligible to win a copy throughout our broadcast tonight, we're gonna to be giving away all five of these copies. All you have to do is leave a comment. So we are going to randomly choose comments both from Facebook and from YouTube. So leave a comment and you will automatically be entered to win one of these books. If you win, I will give you an email address to give us your address and we will get that sent out to you right away. And so with no further ado, we're gonna bring on Mr. J. Werner Wallace. Jim, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been a busy day for you, hasn't it? It has, but I, I'm indebted to you. Um, isn't that great how God works? So we, we met in this weird way through Cross-Examine Instructors Academy. And now here you are doing this huge service of allowing us to do a party on your channel. I'm, just, I'm indebted to you. Thanks so well, much. Well, <laughs> for those who are not familiar with how much I'm indebted to you, you know, we've ta I've talked about this on the podcast before that a few years ago in 2016, I went to the Cross-Examine Instructor Training and you were the first instructor I had. And you were the most intimidating person to me <laughs> because Why? I'm like, well, you're this, you're this, uh, you know, cold case homicide detective. I'm this flaky artist. I'm like, I have to give some kind of presentation and I'm like, oh, he's going to hate this. But you were so encouraging to me <laughs> and you always have been. And so, well, I mean, right away, I just, it was pretty obvious right away that there's something so personal. I mean, everyone who listens to your channel, listens to your podcast knows my wife's one of your biggest fans. So, so I mean, I think that we, we knew right away the minute I heard you speak that this was going to be something special that God was going to eat. But he already had been using you and Zoe mm -hmm. Girl. And, and by the way, you know that I was a youth pastor for years. And I used a bunch of Zoe Girl stuff in my um, – we used to do missions trips where we would take our youth group to different um, – different projects and adventures. And then after I would always have somebody there, a student with the camera who would be filming everything, videotaping everything, but there's no tape, videoing everything. I'm like an old guy, but um, afterwards I would take it and I would, I would, you know, I would post it out to the students afterwards. So I would create a video and I would edit it, post edit it. And then I would uh, use it in church the next Sunday so that everyone could see what they would, what did the prior Sunday. And also to encourage students to, join us the next time we did a project like this. So I always needed music. And, and so I would use a lot of, of your music uh, as, uh, I should probably send you some of those videos, but um, just to kind of, as a soundtrack for uh, the videos we would do. So yeah, so I knew your work and you gotta been using that way for a long time. And it's just interesting though, that even though you may be gifted in one area, you don't know that it's gonna translate or it's gonna shift yeah. into some other area. That's what I was so impressed with you was that it, I realized these are two, what people would probably think are almost mutually exclusive areas of ministry. Yeah. That ended up, yeah. So how great is that? So it's so great. And I'm so thrilled yeah. that we've been able to kind of grow this platform to be able to promote this. I really feel like in many ways, this is kind of like your magnum opus, isn't it? This is like your the <laughs> ultimate think of it that way. investigation. Yeah. So tell, well, tell you know, for anyone ways, who's we, un we, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say for anyone who's unfamiliar with your work, I can't imagine yeah. there's many out there that aren't, but just give us a little snapshot of your story because you have a very unique story, not just coming into Christianity, but coming into apologetics that would even lead you to have the certain skill set you have to be able to write a, a book like this. So just give us a little overview of your story. Well, I didn't see it coming, you know, so like I was somebody who, uh, for the most part, didn't, uh, didn't think much about God. Um, and I was, it, it was not part of my upbringing. It was not part of my uh, my my worldview here in Los Angeles County in the 60s and 70s growing up in this area. 
um, didn't know any Christians really. Uh, my wife though, Susie, she, she definitely had a different experience in the sense that she knew something about um, God and Jesus from a kind of a culturally Catholic perspective. But I will tell you that in the first 18 years we were together, I, we never talked about this. It was never a part of a discussion. Um, I was more than willing to go with her, you know, like on, I thought on Christmas, do you go to a mass? Maybe sometimes, um, that was probably kind of a cultural, but it doesn't mean I, you know, but I honestly thought it was just a cultural thing. Um, and so I never saw this coming that she would ever want to go to church. And so when she said she started wanting to go to church, take the kids to church, we had kids now who were, we we had two boys and they were young. And the question was, do we raise them with some Christian world? Well, no, I wasn't raised that way. I don't, you know, if you want to, I'll go, I'll be part of it. I mean, I will uh, support you on this, but I didn't see any need for it. Um, but the pastor was clever enough to pitch Jesus in a way that was intriguing to me. He said that Jesus was the smartest man who had ever lived. And it was a big church. Uh, and we were there for probably about two years. Um, and the first day he said this, and I remember it stuck with me and intrigued me enough that I went out and bought a pew Bible because I thought, well, what's so smart about Jesus? And that is honestly what started me working the case for Jesus. I, I was at the time I was working undercover. We had, we were doing a bunch of things. We had, had some homicide suspects. We had some robbery suspects. We had a bunch of different kinds of suspects. And over the next, you know, probably nine months, I started to investigate the Gospels, eight, eight months, probably. Um, I just don't have a, like a firm date because I never saw myself as like, oh, I can at least struggle. When he started investigating Christianity because Leslie became a Christian, he he really was after it. And so he could probably tell you the beginning and the end. I, I didn't take it that seriously. I thought this is, this is not true. But the more I started to chip at it, the more I realized, oh, this is worth investigating. And then it started for me. So I can't even tell you, I think it was probably in, I don't know if it was 95 or 96 that we started, uh, that I first walked in there, but it was probably another eight to nine months before I would have said, I got baptized. And and I, and I it spent that time, and Susie will tell you, every day, every day, I was obsessed mm. because I just thought it was so interesting. Well, first of all, I had learned forensic statement analysis from my agency. So I knew how to uh, analyze statements for deception indicators and things like that. So I just was able to press that into service studying the gospels. And so that was really, I think why it almost gave me an exercise mm -hmm. in this discipline. So that's probably a lot of why I was so committed to this, but in the end, you know, I, it's, the only way I knew to, just, to determine if something was true was to examine it from an investigative perspective. So that's why I took that approach. It wasn't like I was trying to be clever. I just didn't know any other way to examine it. Yeah. And your your first book, Cold Case Christianity, you wrote a children's version as well as God's yeah. Crime Scene, which came after, and there was a children's version to that, and then Forensic Faith. 
And then we have this book here about Jesus, this person of interest, and it answers such an interesting question because this is something that I've thought about a lot because we have a lot of skeptics who will say, well, I don't, I'm not going to believe what you say about the Bible. I mean, you can't just tell me about this Jesus person out of your holy book because what would be the difference between you doing that and then, you know, somebody telling me about the Hindu gods out of their holy books or the, you know, Buddhism out of their holy books. And so you're kind of, you're, you're attacking this huge question. What if we lost every copy of the New Testament in existence? No digital copy copies, no physical copies, no manuscripts, everything is gone. Would there be any evidence of Jesus? And more importantly, would we even be able to know what the gospel is? And this is a huge question that you've taken on in this book. So tell us a little bit about this book and what inspired you to write it now. Well, and a lot of this for me was just kind of taking an approach. Okay, well, why now? Well, okay. So, um, I'm always in, in, I love taking a creative approach to anything. Like uh, uh, you're definitely a creative, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's who you are. Mm-hmm. And that, that emerges in your work, right? The way you approach things. Well, my background was in the arts. And so I was an artist before I was a, a police officer. Then I was an architect before I was a police officer. And those are the things that were really of high value to me was the arts. And I felt when I became a police officer, there was a real tug for me that I felt, wow, I lost that creative outlet. That a lot about police work cannot, is not necessarily creative. It's, it's about certain procedures and policies and principles that you employ over and over and over and over again, which for people like us who are creative, is like a, like a death sentence, right? Like, I don't want to do the same thing twice the same way, right? I want a creative approach to each thing I do. So it was really hard for me when I first became a police officer. So I write books now because each one of these, and you know, if you look at, you know, person of interest, I mean, it really is, but what's the, what is the goal of writing a book? Well, of course, I want to examine things in a way, this is, it really chronicles my own investigation from years before, but, but, but really what I'm trying to do with each one of these books is um, produce a piece of art. I think books are a piece of art. I'm actually concerned deeply with how they print it. Mm-hmm. Like what's the texture of the cover? Yeah. These little blood stains. The how blood spatter has texture, guys. We've yes, got blood yeah, spatter right, right, texture. Right. <laughs> but also, how do the images land on a page? Mm, look so at that. So I send all of this to the publisher. Like, I have an idea of how I want each page to look. And I, you know, this has got uh, 400 illustrations for basically about 200 and what, 200 pages and change, right? So it's not even that many pages. Some of these pages have two illustrations each. And so I'm thinking about in terms of like a piece of art. Yeah. So how do I make this book as a creative, you know, this piece of art? So, so that's what I'm trying to do here is, and so that to me is the goal. So when I write a book, it's really a creative expression. But now what am I writing about? Well, a lot of times I'm asked to write about like, what was your journey? So I did half of it in cold case and I kind of left it there. And I didn't write another book about Jesus. I wrote a book about God and God's crime scene. I wrote a book about faith and forensic faith, but I didn't write another Jesus book. And I only gave you kind of half of what I did back when I was a new investigator of Jesus. So this book is like kind of the companion piece to Cold Case. It's kind of the uh, Cold Case is everything inside the New Testament. Person of interest is everything outside the New Testament. So you put those two things together. Mm. I think it's a decent case for Christianity. Um, but that's so I was asked to write the second half, basically. Like if I would never write another version, another version of Cold Case. Cold Case is Cold Case. It's going to stay the way it is. I'm not doing a 10-year anniversary version of Cold Case. 
Uh, what I'm doing instead is writing a sequel, which is kind of the other side of the investigation. That's person of interest. But, you know, in terms of a mag people have said this because they think it's like a magnum opus. Well, I guess maybe in some ways, maybe because it's highly illustrated. But what happens is the longer you write books, the more likely your publisher is to give you the latitude to design mm. your own books. So if you look at the interior design credits on this book and the illustration credits, well, now they're ours, right? Because we, we get to design these from the ground up. That was not an option for me. As a matter of fact, when I wrote the first book, I said, I want to include some illustrations. And they're like, well, really? Uh, you know, we'll see. Because uh, no, there really wasn't many books that were that well illustrated. Not well, but I mean heavily illustrated. So, so for something like this now, we're in a place where I'm telling them, okay, this is going to be an entirely visual book. There'll be at least one illustration per page. You got to get a publisher to say, well, okay, well, I'll, we're willing to tackle that because it's not your usual printing. It's got a little bit more. So, yeah. so that's why this book ended up the way it is. But for me, what I'm doing is I'm looking at the case for Jesus as if there's no New Testament at all. So it's similar to working in a no-body uh, murder case where you have a man, and I've had at least three of these now, where um, a guy kills his wife, gets rid of the body, and then claims that she ran off. And I've had some where they, oh, she flew off. So she got in a plane and she flew away or um, she drove away. Um, so, so, but of course, what really happened is she, he killed her and then he buried the body someplace. We couldn't find her. Now, the question is, if we don't take that as a murder case the first day and we take it as a missing, there are times when that can go wild. It might take a week before it gets assigned to a detective. And then he goes out there and no one's suspicious about her being missing. Oh, yeah, she's the kind of person that might run off. So he doesn't give it any more attention. And then he gets transferred out of the detail. And before you know it, five years have gone by and no one's even looked to see if she came back. And then when some sergeant's trying to clear paper, and he's like, hey, did this woman ever come back? No, she never did. He's like, oh, this is a murder. Hmm. This is not, look, she's not going to leave and leave all these great opportunities she had and all this. Well, how do you make a case when you've got no crime scene and no body? So a lot of this is similar to saying, okay, nothing in the crime scene, no New Testament. Here's how we do it in front of a jury. We say, okay, on the day she went, back, went missing, good chance she was killed. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, a bomb went off, a bomb of anger. And that, but that was preceded by a fuse that took a while to burn. And then after it explodes, there's shrapnel all over the place. We'll show you what happened on the day of the murder by simply tracing the fuse and the fallout. The fuse and the fallout. And I've got some really cheesy uh, PowerPoint from back in the day when I would do this. I mean, I started doing these kinds of cases probably, probably uh, 17, 18 years ago. So these kinds of cases, um, my first uh, visualization of these kinds of cases is, is cases is pretty primitive. But it worked for juries because they can see, oh, yeah, you know, that makes sense. This is the stuff he has to do in preparation to kill her. And all of that stuff seems consistent with somebody preparing to kill somebody. And then afterwards, he does all this kind of cover-up activity that seems consistent with somebody in the fallout who is trying to uh, obscure the fact that he killed her. Well, I thought, could we do the same thing with Jesus? If we had no New Testament, no evidence in a crime scene, could we make a case for what happened in the first century with Jesus of Nazareth, that bomb that went off, by simply tracing the fuse and the fallout of history? And that's what we do in this book. So this book is all about everything uh, that you could learn about Jesus, even if you had every no, no New Testament documents. Every one of those have been destroyed. That's the goal.
Well, I love some some of the connections you make in this book are so fascinating, and I want to get into some of that, but we should probably give a, a book or two away to get us started here. But first, I want to look at some comments that people are leaving. David Walcott says, woohoo, phenomenal book. And by the way, I want to thank David uh, for helping moderate on YouTube. He's helping to choose the random winners today, so everybody tell David thank you. Uh, Made by Ava says, this is so cool. Uh, Made by Ava also asks, will this be on audiobooks? I'm assuming it will be, yes? Yes, it's already out. I recorded it probably a month ago. So, so yeah, it's it's already available. Did you do the voice? I did. Yes, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I love when authors read their books. On my Twitter feed, I think I posted my Twitter feed. The first, I think chapter one is available from Harper Collins for free, so you can kind of listen to one chapter. Awesome, man! People are loving this. How lucky can we be? I need that book. Hello from Texas. Well, you know how how this is. Uh, Here's the thing about it, too. And you know this. I mean, you know me, and I've said this before. (sighs) I hate selling books. I hate selling books at events. I I hate selling books online. Uh, The worst part about writing books is marketing books. Because I feel like as an atheist, the thing that I was always suspicious of was that these Christians are always selling something. But you know me well enough to know that, um, well, first of all, you know that an apologetics book, for the most part, don't sell. Like, they're not, you're not going to get rich selling apologetics books, right. okay? It's a very small niche. But number two, um, I don't have that. I mean, I have a pension. I don't, this is not my career. This is the stuff I get to play with in my retirement. Um, and I'm so uncomfortable about having to sell books. I don't know if I ever told you this, Elisa, but the first book I wrote, I asked the publisher, I said, hey, if you could take and show me, just show me that you're spending every dime of royalties on marketing for the book, I don't need to have any royalties from the book. I'll take wow. zero. As long as you can show me that you're using that money to get the word out about Jesus. And they said, you know, the problem is that, and this is back in 2013, we just don't have that kind of system in place to market books. Like we don't have a marketing team we could even spend that money on. Yeah. Post to Amazon, it's all changed. And so I thought, oh, geez. Okay. So I said, thanks for the offer, though, but we just don't have a team in place that we could use that money. So, so the reality of it is, I always say that anyone can write a book, getting someone to read the book, that's the trick. Yeah. So, well, I, will, I have no shame promoting your book. I'm very excited to be promoting your book, Person of Interest. Let's go ahead and give a couple of these away. So, I have two winners already from the comments. We have the first book going out to Gary Allen Van Riper. So Gary, congratulations. Email contact at elisachilders.com with your address awesome. and we will get this sent out right away. So Gary Allen Van Riper, you must uh, email in by the way to get your copy. Uh, and the second one is going out to Kathy Baldock. So Gary and Kathy, congratulations. You've both won a copy awesome. of Person awesome. of Interest. Gary Allen Van Riper, Kathy Baldock, email contact at elisachilders.com with your address and we will get uh, your copy sent out to you right away. So Jim, I've got a question here from Christopher. The question Go. is, what is actually known about Jesus from non-Christian sources? How do how do you know that he existed at all? Well, of course, the, the earliest non-Christian sources would be more valuable than, not, than later non-Christian sources. Now, I've got to ask the question first, though, is that the assumption in that question is that I could only trust a non-Christian source. And I think it's a faulty assumption, if I'm honest with you. Now, in the book, I've got a whole chapter on literature, so you can see the course 
of how it is that people have responded to the person of Jesus in the form of written literature. And I've got all of the voices in the first 300 years. The reason why I picked those 300 years is because I knew that, you know, power corrupts. And at some point, Christianity becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. And I think that you could argue, at least a skeptic, I would have argued that power of the of empire would corrupt the story of Jesus, which might be now weaponized in some way or changed in some way to better serve the people who are in power. But that period of time for 300 years before the Edict of Milan, which kind of, uh, and the Edict of Thessalonica, which at least allowed, either allowed Christianity to exist without persecution or embraced Christianity as the religion of the empire. In that first 300 years, you go through periods of either persecution or some form of tolerance, persecution is some form of tolerance, back and forth, back and forth, depending on the emperor. And if you look at that, okay, that's the time I'm most interested in. What were people saying about Jesus during that period of time when, for the most part, Christianity was often driven underground and back up again and driven underground again? I think that's probably going to give you the truest form of Christianity in the pre-Roman Empire uh, acceptance period. So I'm looking at that period before 325 uh, AD. And if you look at that period of time and you trace all of the voices, and I have a list, a complete list in the literature chapter, and I think it's a pretty robust list. As a matter of fact, I sent that list to Gary Habermas, who is an expert. I think he's the foremost expert in the resurrection because he's he is writing his Magnus Opum on the uh, work of, of what's been said about the resurrection historically. And I wanted to make sure he kind of said, hey, I'm seeing I'm hearing these voices in antiquity. And I kind of gave him my, my platform. I said, here's what here's what I'm, here's the idea I'm using. I find there's like 92 voices that are non-Christian voices in the first 300 years that are recorded on ancient manuscripts. But the question becomes, well, how, why would you trust something in 300 when it's that far removed from the actual event? So I get that. So, so we can trace the earliest uh, non-Christian records of Jesus. But to be honest, that assumes that you don't trust the Christian record for some reason. Oh, yeah, because they're biased. They're Christians. They didn't start off as... Matthew did not start off as a Christian. He's a guy named Levi. If you're looking for the guy who was not in the group of the disciples of John the Baptist, a guy who's not part of that group, because I can understand you might say, well, that group, they kind of were expecting a Messiah, and John then points to Jesus and says, there he is, the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. So they just followed John's instruction and joined the group. That's not Levi. Now, Levi is outside the group and is really not really respected by the group but joins the group. And then after three years of watching that nonsense, he's writing a gospel about it. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for that guy who's not in the group, who then ends up being a believer on the basis of what he saw, can you really call somebody biased who simply writes, ends up believing in something on the basis of what he saw? I actually think if you were in tight enough to write a record of what it is Jesus did, well, now you're a Christian, so now you're going to say you're not, you're disqualified. Is that fair? It's only fair if you start off believing Jesus is the Messiah. But if you didn't start off believing that, but you ended up believing that on the basis of observation, it seems fair to me to include that record. But aside from that, I've got a complete list of all the ancient voices that are documented in one way or another, Jewish, Greek, Persian, Roman, Egyptian. You'll see them all uh, in a complete list. Now, what we did here, because the book... I think our PDF file for this book is well over 250 pages. So I pushed it off as a PDF file. So the case notes 
because it would be t t twice the size of the book would just be case notes. So I've pushed that off to a PDF file. So when you buy the book, you'll see there's a link to the PDF file. You can print it or save it because I think all of this data related to well, who am I quoting? Where am I getting that information from? It's all in the case notes, but there's a ton. Yeah. There are more non-Christian voices in the first 300 years describing the life of Jesus than there are existing Christian voices of the church fathers. There are more non-Christian voices than there are Christian voices. It's fascinating. That's really fascinating. I have a, a very interesting question here from Zahir, and this is something I've kind of thought through myself and tried to, to land on. But the question is, is experience a form of evidence? Because, you know, of course, when you're, when you're observing things, that's part of your experience is the observation. How does that all work together for you? When you, when you ask that question, what is experience a form of evidence? Yes, clearly it is. So even your, if you said I had an experience of God, is that evidence? Yes, but all experiential evidence must be tested. Observations are only by a loose definition of experience. So to, for me to say I observed in a group setting, four people observe something as eyewitnesses. When we say four people experience, you could say that four people experience something. But typically when we say, well, is my personal experience a form of evidence? What we really mean is it's not, it's not confirmed by anybody else. In other words, it's not like five of us saw this crime and we all are reporting it later. That would be an observation of eyewitness testimony. What we mean is I've experienced something so personally that I can't, unless I tell you about it, you wouldn't understand because we didn't experience it in a group setting. I experienced this personally. Now, is that a form of evidence? Yes, but all experiences must be tested. And so although I think experience can be a form of evidence, it cannot stand on its own right unless you test it in some way. So if you said, hey, you know what? I had an experience when I was living with my girlfriend for five years. We knew that God was in our relation. We experienced God on a daily. OK, well, first of all, uh, if it's outside the will of God, the moral will of God, as stated in Scripture, then you've had an experience, but it may not be of God. So all these experiences have to be tested against, tested against what the Christian worldview. By the way, how many people do you know who had an experience as, as a Mormon? Tons. As a matter of fact, I got six brothers and sisters who all raised LDS. At some point, they would rely on an experience they had that demonstrated for them that Jesus, that uh, Joseph Smith's a prophet of God, and the Book of Mormon is true. So, does that experience mean that that Book of Mormon is is true and that G Joseph Smith's a prophet of God? Well, no. It's got to be tested in some way. And this is why it's so important for us to be able to say, well, is there any exterior exterior? This is why people will say, well, are there any non-Christian sources that confirm this? Right. But in the end, the problem you're going to have is that you looking for somebody who who uh, was in that group of 12 who could. Well, if you're in that group of 12, you, you watch that stuff for three years. There's a good chance you're writing that from the perspective of somebody who believes it's true because you saw it with your own eyes. And you would automatically disqualify that group. Right. Because you got to be a non-Christian. But then if somebody, a non-Christian comes up in the first century, you disqualify them because you say, well, it's too late. Well, the people who are timely, you've disqualified, and the people who are non-timely, you've disqualified. It's kind of hard to get behind that then, right? How do you, how do you work around those, those restrictions? Well, this book answered a huge question that I've had, and I've tried to think through. And so I think it through like this. Jesus was born, you know, 4 BC, something like that, somewhere around there. But human history goes back thousands of years before that. 
Um, so when we think about how many people were born and lived and died during that span of years, it can almost seem like if God, you know, if God wanted to save the world and send a savior, why wouldn't he have done it sooner? Why, why let all of those people be born, live and die in that period of time? So the question would be, why, why wouldn't Jesus have come earlier when all the people who lived before him could have heard the gospel? Why did he come exactly when he did? Right. Well, for a lot of this, then comes the question of, okay, so how are people saved prior to Jesus? And that's a different kind of question. And I think there's many, a number of different ways that theologians have resolved that question, right? Like, what do we do before there's a savior? What do we do with people? If we think that the, our, our beliefs are that putting your trust in that savior is what saves you. Well, then what do you do with people who are born before the savior? And so, of course, there's a certain criteria you would have for people who are born before the Savior arrives. The same way there are certain criteria you would have for people who might die before they are cognitively aware that there is a Savior. Right. So we would have there's certain kind of categories here that doesn't provide a stumbling block for me. But what one thing does provide a, I mean, a question I wanted to answer is why does Jesus come when he comes? And I think that that's why the fuse is so important. As you study that that history that leads up to Jesus, you will see that there is an optimal range in which Jesus can come and have the most incredible impact on the world, which he did. And it might just be that God has orchestrated history in such a way so that when he does step into history, it creates the hugest, the biggest impact, given what he knows about fallen humans. And, and we are fallen enough to want to resist the truth about God. So I think that that's part of it. So that's why I trace three different kinds of strands of this fuse, a spiritual strand, a, a prophetic strand, and a cultural strand. And so I'm looking at things that are both within the Judeo-Christian tradition and things that are outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And I think those all those things together give you a reason. And actually, in one of the chapters, I think it's chapter four, I talk, or five, I talk about a red zone, a little window of opportunity that is available from about 29 BC to about 70 AD, that if something, if something is clearly going to happen right there, and you wouldn't necessarily notice it unless you kind of overlap these windows of opportunity from those three strands. And so I try to do that to show you. And by the way, that was not something that I had like factored in. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, done that red zone like that. Um, maybe. I remember when I first started showing it to Susie years ago, she was pretty impressed with it because we thought, what are the odds that there would be a red zone of opportunity based on these strands that is right around the time that Jesus comes. But as I worked it and kind of realized all of those factors for this book, because now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to research it to a point and give you footnotes to a point where you can kind of decide if it's true for yourself. I had a, uh, someone offered an objection recently. Well, Jim, you're not quoting a lot of other academic sources. No, I'm not. I'm trying to go back to the things that the academic sources are looking at, mm -hmm. right? Because I just have a just, you should just trust me as I'm not an expert. I'm an investigator. I hope you're an investigator too. I hope all of us who are watching this consider ourselves to be investigators. That means that I'm willing to listen to how somebody else has interpreted the evidence. But I want to go back to, we tell jurors that you're going to have an expert witness. They're going to testify about the evidence, but their, their testimony is not, it's opinion, expert opinion, but it's still, a, you get to go back and you are free to disagree with their inference. If you think a better inference can be made from the evidence, then you're free to make that inference on you. You're not, uh, you're not uh, obligated to, to trust the opinion of an expert on either side. 
prosecution or defense. We're going to present the evidence and you can make your own inference. That's kind of what I'm trying to do in the case notes. It's just present the evidence and make your own inference. You know, one of the skeptical claims that gets made against Christianity quite often from, uh, you know, atheist sources and skeptical sources is that G this Jesus story is just a copy of ancient pagan yeah. dying and rising gods. And you give a very interesting answer to that. It's, it's, it's one I had not really encountered before. I've heard people answer these claims like, oh, no, it really wasn't that much like those things. But you actually kind of embrace this a little bit and you combine the characteristics of the ancient pagan deities and, and the Old Testament right. characters into one person and yeah, tell and us that, a little bit about it, that well it's controversial for sure i think because i think the people I, so i'm looking at it from the perspective okay well first of all yes i did examine all of the ancient mythologies to see if these similarities they aren't that similar but they are similar in terms of broad categories so if you said well look you know uh our mythology our deity emerges into the world in a supernatural unexpected uh, unnatural way well, Jesus enters into the world in an unnatural, unexpected, unexplained way too, right? Born of a virgin. But your deity may be like Mithras, who emerges out of the side of a mountain, leaving a, a cave, and it's where he comes out of the mountain. That is supernatural. But to say that that is somehow, well, it's similar in the sense that they both emerge into the world in a supernatural way. But beyond that, it's not that similar. And how many people have compared Mithras to Jesus? A ton. But they haven't been careful about uh, you know, examining exactly how it is each emerges in the world. Here's what is similar. There seems to be a similar expectation that if there is a God, he would violate certain natural rules in terms of how he enters into the world. Well, that's, a, I think, a reasonable expectation. So I went back and I looked at all of the similarities between the God, the, the supernatural uh, similarities between the gods. Because this is what people think of the gods. Now, someone recently said, well, yeah, but, you know, there's another similarity you didn't mention. A lot of these gods are debaucherous, uh, promiscuous, um, you know, kind of cheating on, on, on and stealing wives from other people. Well, I'm only looking at the what we would consider to be divine. If, I'm not considering fallen attributes because it is true that in many of these mythologies, they also possess the fallen attributes of humans. Now, isn't it interesting that of all the 15 kind of attributes of deity, we would see the high moral, virtuous, supernatural attributes of gods. Jesus actually possesses all 15 of those attributes. The mythologies that precede him only possess between six and 10. Mm. So these, these mythologies do not, they, they're all different versions of those 15. And although they also possess fallen, debaucherous attributes, Jesus possesses none of those. Isn't that interesting? So it turns out that our expectations of God, even all of our highest, highest virtuous expectations of God are met and personified in the real God who emerges in history. Yet all of our descriptions of the gods that are fallen and human and debaucherous are missing from the person of Jesus. Mm. Isn't that interesting? It is. Now, you've got to either argue, well, yeah, Jesus, the, the Jesus cobblers, the people who are cobbling the Jesus myth, they knew enough about, and I looked at gods even like Quetzalcoatl, the god of, uh, in the Aztec uh, god in South America. So you're really going to suggest that the Jesus, the Jesus cobblers, the, the mythology makers of Jesus, knew enough about the entire pan, uh, uh, pantheon of, of myths to cobble this myth together. And we're trying to do it to convince Jews that he was the Messiah, the Jews who would reject any reference to paganism. I mean, right. okay, 
So people say, wasn't well, that possible? Of course, yeah, anything. I always say yes to anything's possible. Anything is possible. It's possible that we're not even doing this show right now live. I've recorded my part. You've recorded your part. We did it three days ago. Anything is possible, but not everything is reasonable. And so for me, I look at this and I say, okay, the most reasonable. Now, what, what, here's what's interesting. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Lewis says that Jesus just happens to be the true myth. He uses the word myth not as a word that means false story, but as a word that means a narrative about deity. He says that, 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 that Jesus is the true myth from the mind of God, whereas the other deities are the false myths from the minds of the poets and thinkers of antiquity. And that's true. And this is what Paul's kind of doing on Acts chapter seven, uh, Acts 17 on Mars Hill. Oh, you people are pretty religious. You, you worship a lot of different gods. Let me tell you about the real God. So it's not as though those who were teaching about God, about Jesus, were unaware that there were similarities. But in fact, but they knew that, that, that Jesus was the full embodiment of God. Everything you could possibly imagine and expect about God, including all of the typal expectations of the Jews who describe Moses in a way that resembles Jesus, Joshua in a way that resembles Jesus, Jonah in a way that resembles Jesus. Even those typal expectations of the Jews are met in the person of Jesus. Now, why would God do it this way? Why would God take the expectations of pagans and the expectations of Jews and arrive meeting all of those expectations? Well, it turns out that, that there's a relationship between the expector and the expected. The more the expected matches the expectations of the expector, the better the response. And the only people who won't respond are those people who, who really won't bend their knee to a response in the first place. And so what God does is he shows up in the fullest embodiment of all of our expectations for thousands of years in that one period of time when the most people are still worshiping the deities that they expect God to resemble. Mm. And he comes and he meets their expectations. Yeah. That's so cool. And what many people may not know about this book is you're kind of getting a two for one because all of this stuff we've been talking about as far as who we would expect, you know, Jesus as this person of interest and the fuse yeah. and all of that, you're also paralleling that with one of your cold case, uh, one of your cold right. cases. And so I just yeah. remember as I was reading through the book, I would be just as excited to find out what the next uh, part of that story was. And then, you know, you would relate that with Jesus. So I won't give too much away about that, but just know that if you get this book, you're going to, you're kind of getting a two for one. You're getting a, a murder mystery of one of Jim's cold cases, but he's relating that with the story of Jesus and making parallels, which are very interesting and very cool. But hey, let's give another uh, book away, shall we? All okay. right. So this one is going to, we've given one away to Gary Allen Van Riper and Kathy Baldock. This third one is going to Susan Shaw Schlatter. So Susan, congratulations. You've just won a copy of Person of Interest. To claim your copy, email contact at alisachilders.com. Give me your address and we will get this sent out to you right away. And we'll be giving away two more books during this broadcast. So everybody, if you leave a comment, you're eligible to win one of the books. But let's go to a comment here. This is from, or a question here. This is from DD. And the question is, 
Could this approach be a new neutral tactic we can use to interact with unbelievers who don't want us to quote scriptures? And then he says, our precept friends won't like my question on neutrality. And that's just a debate over certain the nature yes. of apologetics. We won't get too deep into that. But could this be a neutral tactic, Jim, that we can use with unbelievers who, who just aren't going to be wanting to hear a bunch of Bible verses trying to describe yeah. who Jesus was? Well, I've heard people who talked about the book already. I've said, hey, you know, this how, how persuasive is it when you don't, I mean, how evidential is this approach? Um, and I, and I, I look at it this way. I, all, everything is evidence. And everything can be used evidentially. Uh, what you find in a crime scene can certainly be used as evidence. What What's missing from the crime scene is also evidential. What somebody says is evidence. What they could have said but failed to say is evidence. What people did is evidence. What they could have done but failed to do is evidence. Everything counts as evidence. And so this approach we're taking here, I think, is part of a larger cumulative case. So I never think any one book is going to give me the silver bullet. Is this going to give you an approach you can take with people who won't give you time to, maybe they don't want to hear about the reliability of Scripture. They don't trust the Scripture. The basic gist of this book is this. There's, there's no reason to believe that someone like Jesus of Nazareth, not even the only person who, who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah, there's a bunch more who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah in history. I don't know if you do that or not, but there's a bunch. And I mentioned them in the last chapter of the book. And, but, but this guy, who's a nobody, raised in a nobody town, nowhere town, uh, born in another nowhere town, never traveled more than 200 miles from the nowhere towns, who never really had a family who had any means to give him an education like you might see, wasn't raised under the royals, never governed a nation, never ruled an army, led an army, never wrote a concert, never wrote a poem, never wrote a book, never had a family of his own and kids to carry on his legacy, was pursued by the people who called themselves religious, hunted by the people who were in power, denied by the people who said they loved him, betrayed by the people who said they were his friends, falsely accused, falsely mocked, never had a social media uh, platform. This is a guy who, who was then falsely accused and, and beatly, uh, brutally beaten and then executed unfairly on a, on a cross and then had to borrow a grave for it to be buried. This is the guy who changed his history. If you didn't know what initiated the common era and you went back to the first century and you looked at everyone who lived in the first century, I've got a list of those in the last chapter. None of those people are responsible for the common era. As a matter of fact, all of them, most of them you won't even recognize because they really didn't have any impact at all. Yet this guy, now this makes sense if he's more than just a man. If, if you would expect this, and by the way, I think those six chapters on, on the fallout that talk about the impact he's had in literature, the arts, music, uh, I got, you know, by the way, Zoe Girls in this in this book. You I saw, saw that, yes. right? Zoe Girls in this book, yes. So, I mean, uh, in, in education and science and world religions, if you look at the impact Jesus has had in those, I think that the better explanation for what, if God enters into his creation, this is the kind of ripple effect you'd expect him to have. But if this is just another average Jewish sage in the first century, I don't know why I would expect any of this to happen. Yeah. There's something different about Jesus, even in the sense that there were religious figures who predate Jesus, Buddha, Hinduism, Indra, um, Krishna, Zoroaster, 
those systems, once they get past the into the common era, they all modify or mention or merge Jesus in their systems. Everything that follows Jesus, Hindu, uh, uh, Baha'i, uh, Islam, different forms of Islam, Ahmadiyya Islam, all these different forms, they all will include Jesus as part of their story. Yet Jesus makes no room for anyone else. He's that one suspect. I often say this, that when you're working a case and you have six suspects, and I had a case one time, I had eight. Eight guys who at first could all have been the killer. And it was looking bad. But in the end, as you work these guys, one ends up standing out as an anomaly. He has a unique relationship to the victim, unlike the other seven. He has a unique opportunity in his schedule that makes him available to do the murder, unlike the seven. So in the end, the seven have a bunch of bland kind of features that are in common. The one stands out as the anomaly. That's probably your guy. Something happens similar here to Jesus is that he is the one outlier who makes no room for anybody else. They make room for him. He makes no room for them. And of all these works-based systems that, that argue you have to do something, be something, approve something, live something in order to be something, that's not Jesus's view. He's the one outlier. So he's the one system that says you can know now that the highest offer that God has for you is available to you. If that's heaven, if it's nirvana, if it's whatever it may be, you can know now that you are saved in that way. And he's the one source that can do that. So he's the outlier of mm. all of these other systems. And that should tell you something about there's something different about Jesus. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And you mentioned your study into some of Jesus' influence in the arts and music and, and some of these things. And so I've got a question here from the Christian Manifesto. And the question is, in the book, you talk a lot about how Christians influenced art, education, literature, and so forth. What did you learn from that study as to how we can best leverage those ideas now? Well, I've, what I've learned is that we have voluntarily surrendered our position. Mm. That's what we have. Seriously. I'm angry about it. Mm. You know, if you study the history of science, you'll see that Muslims had a huge impact on the sciences until about the 12th century. Um, and there's some question about why it is they kind of dropped off the map. Most of it has to do with the theological understanding related to the Quran. You know, if, if, if everything that's revealed about nature is revealed in the Quran, then anything you might discover by your scientific uh, explorations that would contradict the Quran would be useless information because the Quran's information would trump it. So what's the point in, in doing all that? Now, there's a book called The Closing of the Muslim Mind that kind of explores some of these theological notions. But what I discovered in examining the history of science is you see this huge input, 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 you know, all kinds of input from Muslims. And then all of a sudden it just drops out. And now it's all Christian. Now, could we do the same thing now? Could we actually drop out of our engagement of the sciences because we hold a philosophical or theological view that now is somehow... Look, for generations, for centuries, Christians believed that their exploration of the natural world was an act of worship to think God's thoughts after him in the natural world by discovering something about the nature of God as, ex as, as it exists in the natural world and is discovered by the scientific um, in, uh, exploration. We could, we could very easily voluntarily step away from that. But we would be stepping away from our historic leadership in an area that we should not step away from. I, and I hate to say it, you, you tell me, I don't want to be. So you and I are both in Nashville next month after the Dove Awards 
to, to, to talk about Christian worldview with Christian recording artists. Yep. And what are we, why are we doing that? Well, we're doing that because we've seen so many deconversions in the last deconstructions in the last two years, three years that we, we wonder at some point how well catechized are any of us before we engage in anything, yep. including the, the arts. So we want to make sure that people at least know what Christianity is, right? Before we make a decision about whether we're going to be singing about Christianity or doing movies about Christianity or writing books about Christianity. So I, I kind of feel like I, I hate to think this, but I know we have already surrendered our leadership in the arts mm. in many areas. But just know this, that we've, we've surrendered it so, so, um, so deeply that I think it would be surprising for people to see how much Jesus has historically inspired artists. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write that chapter. I, I didn't think about it because when I was in the art school and studying art history, I was not a Christian. So I always kind of didn't, I didn't like put to it. But Susie will tell you, when we were in visiting Europe, when I was in grad school, her, her um, family used to tease me all the time because it was like, oh, here we go again. Another day in Europe with this guy. He wants to see one church, one castle, next city. One church, one castle, next city. One church, one castle, next city. Because all the great architecture that was in Europe, it, was, it seemed like it was in the form of either churches or castles. And the churches were largely, of course, constructed by Christians and adorned. A lot of Baroque architecture was in Southern Germany. Autoborium, for example, is this amazing church. I went back to it time and time again. It was close to where her family grew up or close to where Susie was born. And so we would go and just look at this church. It's unbelievable. You can't even tell where the structure of the church is. It's so well adorned and the architecture is so um, uh, curvaceous. You know, it's just amazing. And it's all Christian architects doing this work. And I just ignored the impact that Jesus had as a source of inspiration for artists. That's where I want to focus on is that if you look at all of art history, in every single epic period of art history, if it's from antiquity all the way to pop, uh, pop, uh, like pop art or to Dadaism or to um, expression or uh, impressionism, whatever it is, look at all the different categories of art and art history. Then Google the top three or top five artists in every historic period. Then look at their catalogs. All of them have painted, sculpted, etched, or drawn Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. Even if they're not Christians. Yeah. Because he has been that source of inspiration for artists from antiquity to now. Yeah. The same is true for music. If you yes. Google the, I, I went through all the, the, the databases of the top artists in, you know, the last hundred years in every category. I think all but two have uh, sung a song about Jesus. Yeah. A lot of them have been derogatory songs about Jesus. He'll infuriate some people. Yeah. I love uh, Frank Zappa's song, Chris, uh, Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. That's a great song. <laughs> so it's not always a positive song, but because he's this, there's no other historical figure in the history of historical figures who has been painted more, illustrated more, or sung about more than Jesus of Nazareth. You know, that's a Western phenomenon, Jim. Actually, it's not. I have an A to Z catalog. Jesus translates into every culture in a way that's unique to Jesus. So, for example, if you look at the art of Buddha in South America today and compare it to Asia 500 years ago, Buddha looks the same. But if you look at Jesus in Asia compared to South America, compared to South Africa, compared to Europe, you will see an ethnically different Jesus a culturally different Jesus in context and an artistically different Jesus in style. 
because the Jesus story, because it's true and God has created us in his image and we are very diverse in our appearance, Jesus translates into all those appearances mm. and he has served then as a source of cultural inspiration, even in every niche culture, because unlike Buddha, you don't have to become a certain, it's not a set of rules you must follow. It's a Jesus who loves you and has died for you and who ends up looking like you in art across the globe. So cool. Now I'll, I'll play the skeptic here for a second and just just yeah. kind of ask ask a question that came to mind. And then we have a guest waiting to come on and say hi. Uh, but I'll just play the skeptic here and say, well, you know, you almost could say the same thing about Santa Claus, right? Because you have so many legends mm -hmm. about Santa Claus. You have stories. You have uh, different cultural expressions of Santa Claus. So how is this different than say the Santa Claus legend or the story? Uh, I've heard the same thing about Star Wars characters. Mm. These have had huge impact. Okay, tell you what, if a thousand years from now. Now, we've divided our calendar, and Santa Claus has inspired the creation of every educational institution that matters, <laughs> and all of art, and has changed our, and, and all of uh, science, all, really? <laughs> okay. If there's not a difference between uh, Jesus and Santa Claus in terms of impact on culture, you're not paying attention to culture. Right. The reality of it is, is that Jesus isn't, is not just a character that reoccurs. He is an igniter that is a catalyst for all the important aspects of culture, even that atheists. So as an atheist, here's what was important to me before I became a tech, uh, police officer, because I was raised in the arts, right? Uh, so for me, it would have been literature, music, art, education, science. Forget about world religions. I don't care about religion. I just care about those five things. Well, those five things are not ever going to, you can never say that those five things stand on the shoulders of Luke Skywalker or stand on the shoulders of Chris Kringle. They stand on the shoulders of Jesus and his followers. There is no comparison. Yeah. Without Jesus and his followers, those five areas of culture are entirely different. And to say that you don't, you know, the sad thing about it is, is that people know so little of the impact of Jesus and culture that they could actually make a comparison to Santa Claus mm. as if it was a valid comparison. That's only because they haven't really thought about the impact that Jesus and his followers have had on the most important things that matter to atheists. Mm. Very good. And again, guys, get the book because there's so much more in here. I'm talking with Jay Werner Wallace about his new release. It's out today. You can order where, Jim? On Amazon everywhere, right? Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Yeah, today is the day it actually goes live. And we've got a special. We had a pre-order offer. Doesn't everybody do that? But we have one also. And the Zondervan extended it to October 1st. You can get that at Person of Interest Book. Dot com and that or that offer is basically a free ebook, a bunch of Bible inserts, a free video, and some discount stuff. So that's what we're trying to. So say the website again. Another ten days. Okay, ten days. So say the website again. Yeah. So that's at personofinterestbook.com. Personofinterestbook.com. Go there to get your your extra goodies yep. for ten more days. All right. So when yep. we were planning this uh, kind of launch party, I said, "Who you know, if you wanted to have a couple of guests on, who would you want?" to choose. And you kind of yes. lean toward asking a couple people who had some influence on this book in one way or another. And so the first yeah. that we're going to bring on is actually, actually both of these guests have been guests on my podcast before. And this yeah. one coming on is a recent guest. And this is Dr. Richard Howe. Yes, there's the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> yes. He actually Greetings. was just on the podcast to, 
he was just on the podcast yeah. to answer skeptical questions. And he just like, he was such a good sport. People just it. threw the hardest questions at him. And he was like, bring it on. I got it. So Jim, uh, Jim tell yes. us, first of all, what, what you know, I had to be impact? hospitalized after that. Yeah, did you? Yeah. <laughs> I bet you did. I bet you did. Well, you know, we, we all met the same way, right? So a lot of our, our, our relationship, I think we're living in this kind of neat kind of golden era in apologetics where there's, a, there's, you know, a kind of a surge right now in the last, what, 15, 20 years, maybe, and Christian apologetics, maybe since Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ and kind of introduced the world to a bunch of people he had interviewed, and all of a sudden those folks became household names. And so, so we are living in this generation right now where people like Frank Turek uh, have been running this cross-examined instructors academy and have been bringing all of us together. We've all met really through that common connection. So we all owe a debt of gratitude to Frank yes. um, for, for kind of using us in that capacity. But when I first met Richard, it was pretty clear to me that Richard was like the smartest person I was ever going to meet. And I so I, I always <laughs> would talk over certain issues. I didn't know him in time for a cold case, uh, but I did be, before I did God's crime scene. And so there were several chapters of each book that I would run by Richard first just to make sure I wasn't writing any checks I couldn't cash, right? And a lot of that is because, you know, as a detective, you're constantly engaging expert witnesses. Hmm. Just to, I, I, I'm seeing this in the DNA. Am I right? Like, where's the potential pitfall when I get to court? Have I underestimated the value of this marker? So I'm always in, like talking to experts. And so Richard kind of becomes that expert for me, right? Where I want to make sure before I, and so for this book, and I, I asked uh, Lisa to, to to have you on, Richard, because I I don't know how else to thank people who have been so instrumental to a book. And and Richard's been instrumental to two of my books now. Um, and he gets credit in the be very beginning, but that's not much. Um, you know, who reads the, your opening credits, really? Um, so <laughs> I just want to make sure I had him on here so I could say thanks to him publicly. But that whole part of the science chapter where we talk about Galileo, I, I knew that like, I didn't want to get rabbit trailed into the discussion of Galileo when I'm trying to make a case for the overall impact of Jesus and his followers on the sciences. But I knew that that was going to be an obstacle for a lot of people. If I, you can't ignore it, because if you do, then someone's going to say, well, that chapter's disqualified because he didn't even discuss Galileo. But it turns out that Richard had done a bunch of, like the runway was long, and R Richard had already kind of taken off on that runway a couple of times. So he was able to help me kind of rethink even my own skepticism about Galileo. Mm. So really, if, if that, that part of the chapter, I think that's chapter 9, on the sciences, that entire section about Galileo really is just, I'm just channeling Richard Howe. So. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> so Richard, when you when you first kind of heard about this book and when Jim came to you and offered you some of this, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on Galileo. But first, tell us, you know, what were you thinking when he brought to you this idea? What, what was your first thought? Well, of course, I was absolutely flattered uh, because Jim's been a hero of mine, uh, especially when I found out how famous and admired he was everywhere else. So I sort of hitchhike and <laughs> hang on his coattails in that regard and get to hang around and say, yeah, personal friend of Jay Warner Wallace. Thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, so I was I was excited that it was this as opposed to maybe some other things that the book uh, covers uh, that I would just be like, I have no idea what to think. And even with Galileo, there's probably a lot more to be said than sure. than either of us could even squeeze in a chapter or even possibly even a book. But there are the highlights there that had to be 
had yeah. to be hit. Some of the some of the interpersonal dynamics between Galileo and Bellarmine, for example, or Galileo and in, in Urban, Pope Urban, and and such. So, and and, and the thing is, there's a lot of uh, popular misunderstandings about that story, and and uh, not among historians, Christian or non-Christian, they pretty much get the story right. But in the pop culture, there's a lot of things that are exaggerated with him being yeah. chained to the wall and tortured for his faith kind of ideas. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that Jim is setting the record straight for for a, a broad audience that might not have even thought about Galileo at all, much less thought about him in the connection of how Jesus has impacted history. So when you, you know, when the, re the reality of it is, though, he says that, that the Richard gave me a, a huge body of so typically how this works when you're doing this in, in real time is I would call Richard. And I would be on my, you know, my keyboard listening to Richard and just taking copious notes. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm always thinking in terms of like, hey, I know that I don't want the chapter to be um, like, it's, it's kind of a weight issue. Like, right. Like I'm trying to get to my point, but I know I need to go through this portal before I get to that point. But if I'm not careful, the portal becomes the point. So I'm trying to figure out a way to kind of. Uh, surf along the top of the major issues that he's given me because i know that that richard can deep dive these issues so so and as a matter of fact i knew that he had already so so this was a, just an effort to at least kind of talk about because in the end i didn't see it as an obstacle but i needed to know i needed to kind of figure out a way to articulate that well and as a matter of fact even after i did that and took all those copious notes and I wrote the chapter, I sent it to Richard and he still found like three things to correct. So there's, I think my advice to anyone who's doing this kind of work is that you have really good mentors mm. that you, that, that know, that know the, the material better than you do, because what we all are, and this is what every prosecutor is, is we're translators. Yeah. We aren't the expert witnesses. We might call expert witnesses in front of a jury. But in the end, our closing argument is a translation of what they said. It's a synopsis. It's a summary that's made to be rhetorically powerful to move people toward a decision. And that's kind of what I try to do in my books, as I'm taking the uh, testimony of expert witnesses and I'm trying to shape this in a rhetorically powerful way to move people toward a decision. Yeah. So that's that's the kind a... of the, and I, don't, and I have no problem. I'm not an academic. I don't pretend to be. Yeah. And so people will say, well, this is not an academic book. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I love that point. And it's so important because sometimes on my blog comments or on YouTube or something, someone will say, well, what authority do you have? You know, you're a pop singer. And I'm like, I have no authority. I have absolutely none. I'm quoting the authorities. And so I did the right. same thing, Jim, with, with my book, Another Gospel. I sent it to several different scholars of related fields to say, okay, look, is everything I'm saying here accurate? Is this That's portraying right. the evidence? It, am I giving enough that it's, you know, fully orbed or, you know, are Am I missing some things? And Richard and, and his wife, Rebecca, were one of those people I sent a couple of chapters to, if I recall. And uh, there mm -hmm. was another scholar at SES that read the whole book and just kind of gave a, a check for it. So it's very important. I agree with you. If anybody's yes, wanting to totally do this, agree. unless you're going into academics and you're getting your PhD and you're going to be the authority in that field, <laughs> you can go to SES. Well, let me just see, let me just see the see. Yes, I know. Look, yes. We can't you talk can, about this you in can front do of that. Richard because Richard's so deeply connected to SES. He's like the big cheese over there. He you, should have like a, like a, like a, you should have like a Green Bay uh, Packers <laughs> cheesehead hat. Yes. Right now, that's what I need. Cheese. You've given me a great idea. Yes. I, you I'm should gonna... have that because honestly, yeah. he is the big cheese. At... Anyway, the point is, <laughs> um, 
I think part of it, if, you, if I think if, if we thought, and we, I think we used to think this, I think probably 35 years ago, we would have said that anyone coming out of academia is the most trusted source we could have on any particular topic. As if we didn't recognize what we now know are some pretty important presuppositional biases that exist within the academy. Absolutely. So depending on what academy you're going to go to, you can find biblical scholars, quote unquote, who would deny anything about and everything about the Bible uh, as being as being entirely unreliable. Not so much because they have scholarship, but because they're coming out of an academic setting that encourages this kind of skepticism. So, for example, someone like Bart Ehrman can come out, even though his master is Bruce Metzger and hold an absolutely opposed view of scripture that Bruce held, because it depends on what the academy is presenting us as. So I think for the most part, what I don't want to do, and I want to point people back to the facts. So I really need someone like Richard to help me get the facts right. Like what is the relationship between um, uh, Pope Urban and, and, and Galileo? And what are those facts? And I'm doing a lot of other reading also. But I knew that I had read a lot about, and this is why I contacted Richard. I had read so much about Galileo that seemed rather academic. And I just needed, okay, I was having a hard time synthesizing. So what are the the, the, the most immediate facts from this that I can derive? And, and he'd already done that. So, so I was able to kind of take his talking points then I said, okay, that, that's, that, that, that makes sense, given what I read. Okay, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, included that. These are the kinds of things that are so valuable to those of us who are trying to make a rhetorically powerful presentation. So, Richard, for those who are watching and they're just, like, waiting with bated breath to hear what is this issue with Galileo, <laughs> can yeah. you give us a quick just what is the claim that's being made and what, what do we have to answer as Christians in regard to Galileo? Why does it matter? So there are several, at least two things that immediately come to mind, and I'm try, I'm trying to remember how much of this uh, Jim spent time unpacking, but just at least two come to my mind, having talked about this a lot. And I talk about it in the context of presentations that I do on popular atheism, the sort of non-academic marketplace atheism, and I deal with uh, rhetorical arguments they make and scientific arguments and philosophical arguments. So under the scientific arguments that atheists make either against Christianity in particular or religion in general, two specifically are connected with Galileo. One is the idea that Christians are sort of uh, uh, put out with the development of science because we've been displaced from the center of the universe with the Copernican model and then it's pushed over the finish line more or less by Galileo then the Christians get real mad because before then we thought we were the center of everything. And now we've been sort of third rock from the sun. So we're no longer as important as we thought. And, and that's just a myth at several different levels, not the least of which this concept of being at the center of things as a privileged position is a very modern, oh, you think everything revolves around you. That was exactly the opposite in the Middle Ages backwards. You ask people go, well, if you go up out from the world in the ancient thought all the way to medieval, what do you get closer and closer to? Well, you get to the angels and eventually to the gods or to God. So if we got displaced from the center of the universe, we would have been elevated in the minds of the medievals because we were moving closer to the gods. In fact, I've got some great pull quotes from Maimonides and Aquinas both where they talk about being the center of everything. It's sort of like your shower drain. That's where everything goes, all the gunky soap and the hair. And so the closer you are to the center, the most ignoble you are. So that's a myth of Galileo. The other one was that um, 
that he becomes the poster child of Christianity's animus uh, and almost uh, trying to halt the advances of science. Uh, so he's that poster child. See what they did to Galileo. And what yeah. a lot of people don't realize that Jim uh, talks about is the fact that Galileo and this whole episode was just as much, if not more, a battle between one science and another science. Mm. It wasn't just the church that the Copernican model was in opposition to. And by the way, Copernicus had been vetted for almost 80 years by the time Galileo comes on. So this is nothing new. It's just that Galileo was pushing the issue in a way that got a lot of people irritated. But the model stood against the science of the day. So the Pope was on the side of the sciences. If anything, the Galileo model is closer to our contemporary dispute between the Darwinists and the creationists, you know, because the Darwinists have the market share of all of the institutions and the church stands in opposition. So Galileo's model was standing in opposition to the standard model of the scientists that had been since Aristotle, uh, even before Ptolemy. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. that, that uh, uh, as far as what the sciences were all doing and, and the views that they had about, particularly about the earth being the center versus the sun being the center, that was still the main issue. But it was a science versus science as much as it was a uh, science versus religion or one religious view versus another religious view on how to interpret the Bible. And if you think about that for a second, that's the part of it that I was most interested in, right? Because what I was discovering as, and I, we did this as just as a, if it wasn't for COVID, none of this would have happened. But I had a couple of people had reached out to me in the last couple of years and said, Hey, Jim, do you have a nonprofit? We'd like to be involved in your nonprofit. I said, well, I don't really have a nonprofit. I'm just an author who's tinkering around in my retirement. He said, well, can we, if we can ever help you, we'd be willing to help you. So I said, I reached back out to him. I said, well, do you want to do some research on a book? I can use some help. So we started researching the history of scientists. And I just said, hey, let's just do this in a way that's very, um, I have some academic books back here, but I'd rather than use those and rely on those, because uh, I don't think anyone's really done the work I want to do. Can we just do a simple Google search? Here's why I wanted to use Google. Number one, we'll support that stuff later. We'll, we'll back it up. But what I want to find right now is if somebody was being, uh, if I make this claim, I want it to be publicly accessible and verifiable. And considering that like most of the sources on YouTube, I'll be honest with you, they are not friendly Christian sources. So they've usually scrubbed the Christian identity off of any scientist mm. who made any significant impact. And so I figured, hey, we're going to get the tip of the iceberg. We could mention probably a lot more because there's a bunch of scientists out there whose Christian identity has been removed online. So mm. I said, just do me a favor. Just go out and start searching century by century for every scientist. Well, that list would end up being ridiculous. Mm. And then we went through those scientists and we said, how many of them are Christians, Christ followers? And we started to chart that. And I wanted to see how many people were involved in the Christian. So if you look at the history of science, the very people who would say perhaps that, oh, the Catholic Church, for example, was anti-science. Clearly, you can tell that from the story of Galileo. Are apparently unaware of how many science fathers came out of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Because a ton of the science. So we look at all those disciplines, especially during the scientific revolution, in which most modern scientific disciplines were founded. Well, who founded those? Christ followers in the 16th and 17th century. A lot of more Protestant Reformation, a lot of more Catholic. But they were Christ followers, and they dominated the sciences. And then I started to see, as we were looking through the research, this guy's a father of this discipline. This is the father of this discipline. This is the father of that. 
I said, go back. I want to make a comprehensive list of all of the science fathers. Because I have a bad feeling or good feeling that we're going to end up dominating that list. Sure enough, we dominate the list of science fathers all the way into the 21st century. Even quantum mechanics, computer sciences, basic languages and computer languages. But we, we have been involved in all of this. And none of these people ever felt like there was, a, by the way, Galileo never felt like there was a rub. It's not as though he said, okay, I can no longer be a Catholic. I can no longer believe in God or be a Catholic, given what I believe about science. No, he died. And the quotes I have mm -hmm. in, this, in, the, in the book are his views of God post this entire event with Pope Urban. So all of this, he died as a, as a, he didn't see any difficulty in reconciling his beliefs as a Catholic with his work as a scientist even though he may have had a head-to-head -head kind of conflict he he did not like abandon his faith yeah and so there is no rub between these two it's amazing to me when you read the personal journals of scientists throughout history who have written about jesus and accept without a blink the miracles of jesus the resurrection of jesus this the ways and the supernatural aspects of the jesus story that you would think well no scientists would affirm that nonsense right well, it turns out, and this is not just people who are ignorant, and they were in the 16th and 17th century. I have a, in the book you'll see, I, I trace them all the way into this century. And that list is so, uh, here's what it comes down to. We have to make a decision. Are we willing to abandon our, like we said before, we've abandoned it in certain areas. If we abandon our leadership role in the sciences, shame on us, mm. because we ought to know better. We have historically led in the sciences. Why would we give up that point of leadership now? That's a choice. Yeah. And a lot of that comes down to, look, can you see how sciences have kind of been politicized even in the last few years? A little bit. Okay. A little bit. So, so you can see how there, there's a danger in which we could say, well, to be a true Bible-believing, God-fearing, Jesus-following uh, you know, Christian, I don't want to be part of that scientific. That's almost like anti-Christian, right? Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. That's, that has not been how we have seen the sciences historically. Let's let's be let's be clear on this, folks. We we can still lead in this area, and that's a choice we have to make. That's good. Amen. Amen. Well, as we, I think we're going to give it. We have a little surprise that we're going to do after we say goodbye to Richard. But uh, just before we say goodbye to Richard, is there anything else you want to say to him, Jim, or say about him well, to see, everybody watching? Yeah, I just want to say this publicly because we haven't, we haven't, you know, uh, I, I, everyone who knows me personally, and like you too, Elisa, we both have, we're both indebted to Richard in one way or another. And so sometimes there are people who have such a, uh, a gentle spirit that they don't draw attention to themselves. That's right. And if you don't have them on your show, to these people like me and you, like we, we, we could draw attention, <laughs> you know, and you have a YouTube channel, right? And so if we don't invite someone like Richard on the channel or we don't engage them in some way, Richard will continue to be the source of information that we rely on, even though we have a tendency to get all the credit. So I, I just want to say to you, Richard, you know how much I love you and um, you've been, how important you have been to me personally and, and, how, and professionally in terms of this kind of work. So. I'm indebted to you as usual. I'm glad that you're part of, of this book. Uh, thank you. I, I, I can't say uh, how much I appreciate just being a part of both of your ministries and the way that you've let me be. And if I'm ever able to do anything else for you, you know how to call me, email, whatever. And and I always love to be a part. I just love both of you guys so much. And I consider it an honor to be connected to you the way that I am, especially through the CIA. It's really the highlight of my year yeah. when we get to hang around for those yeah, three days. I look forward to every yeah. opportunity. So thanks so much. Richard, tell everybody yeah, your website sure. so they can check out some of your articles and work. You've got your PDF decks on there, everything. So just yes. tell them where they can Thank find you. you. 
All right. Thank you. It's a uh, Richard G. Howe.com. H-O-W-E. Don't leave out the G. Stands for good looking. Uh, so, just so you won't forget that. For some reason, at least audiences laugh when I say that. I'm not figuring out what's funny about that. But Richard G. Howe.com. And you just follow the links. And I, pretty much every presentation I do for all the classes and my public speaking, I've converted into a PDF file. So you can get all those slides uh, that are in the uh, PowerPoint presentation and then contact me if some slide doesn't make sense because you didn't hear the accompanying lecture for it. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's that. By the way, that's a huge resource. You should have bought the URL smartestguyalive.com. Why didn't you buy that? That would have been perfect for you. <laughs> How about you funniest guy? Channel. I'll go for that maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay, good. Thanks, all right, Richard. thanks, Richard. Thank, Thank you so you much for so joining much. us. All right. We'll God see bless. Bye-bye. All right, so I promised a surprise, and the surprise yeah. is, Jim, I haven't even told you this, but Zondervan, I don't know if it was an accident, but they sent me one shipment of the five books we were going to give away, but then they oh, sent yeah. me a few more of the advanced reader copies. Oh, so excellent. we're going to do a blitz giveaway. Of, okay. We're going to give, I think, one, two, three, four, we're going to give five more away. So we're going to do two right now. So the next two winners of the books are Danielle McDonald. Congratulations, Danielle, and Carlene Blythe Mann. So you both have won a copy, Danielle McDonald and Carlene Blythe awesome. Mann. So to claim your prize, email contact at alisachilders.com with your address, and we will get it sent out right away. And then we're going we're gonna to bring on another special guest. And then after that, we're going to give away three more. Three more books. So I have just a huge stack here that we're giving away of this important resource, this awesome resource. These are so bad you can't even give them away for crying out loud. This is, that's <laughs> not good. <laughs> so, okay. So quick question before we bring our next guest on. This is made by Ava. What would you say is the best, ex the best way to explain in a short and factual way to a non-believer that Jesus still is and isn't just a historical figure? Well, that's why I tried to write this book. I mean, in a, in a quick way, can you think of any other historical figure who's had this kind of impact? And just allow them to offer the answer for this. So I looked at, in, in my last chapter of the book, I looked at every other first century person of interest. And, and they, none of them, well, you'll see none of them had the kind of impact that Jesus had on culture and on our calendar and on, on all those six areas of culture I talk about. Then I looked at every other world leader. I have a list of all the other world leaders. You tell me if any of those have had the impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religion that Jesus has had. Those are every other deity or spiritual leader. I listed all of those for you. Take a look at that list. Who's had this kind of impact? So in the end, it's just a matter of saying, well, just tell me. Look, if you think that he's, he's, his, his impact is just common, well, can you tell me somebody else who's had that kind of common impact then? Who would that be? And whoever they offer, ask yourself the question, oh, Santa Claus is well known. Has Santa Claus followers, I mean, has Santa Claus had this impact on, did Santa Claus provide the catalyst for which all modern science emerged? Right. I don't think so. So really it's a matter of saying, well, who is it you think is, is, is uh, um, of, of the same level as Jesus of Nazareth? That's what's so amazing about this. Now you can argue, well, yeah, this is a Western culture the issue, Jim. Really? Well, it turns out that the science that we now benefit that was created and innovated and founded by Christians, by Jesus followers, is the same scientific uh, foundation that the entire world stands on scientifically. 
So it's, it's hard to argue this is purely a Westernish. What you can say is that, yes, it turns out that Christendom in Europe is the, the location and the worldview from which the sciences explode. But that still poses a problem because it turns out that that group in Europe is vastly outnumbered by people groups in Asia, vastly outnumbered by larger people groups all around the globe, at least in that continent, right? And so the question is, why didn't the sciences emerge over there, east of Europe? Why did they emerge? It turns out that the sciences emerge in one place at one time, that is in European Christendom. Now, the region doesn't really matter. What matters is the worldview, the worldview that it serves as the catalyst for this kind of thinking. Had that worldview emerged in China, that's where it would have happened. But it happened here in Europe because that's where the Roman Empire left its footprint. Yeah. And, and Jesus was emerged in the Roman Empire. So in the end, it is something unusual about the worldview of Jesus. And I would just say, hey, so just tell me, can you think of anybody else in the history of else's who had this kind of impact? Who would it be? And then help them to see that really just yeah. because someone's well known. Snoop Dogg is well known, but Snoop Dogg has had no impact on culture the way that Jesus of Nazareth did. Yeah. Feeling pretty dumb for bringing up the Santa Claus claim. Well, I'm not just saying that. People have said this. <laughs> no, but it's what true. Luke Skywalker, yeah. a, a fictional character that's had huge culture. Well, really? Well, within a thousand years, he's yeah. responsible for all the stuff that Jesus is responsible. You're right. Yeah. I'm not going to hold my breath. So good. So, so good. Okay, we're going to bring on our, our next guest. Now, this is somebody I just want to say to everybody watching, this is somebody that I really respect and admire. This person's mind, theological mind, knowledge of the Bible, critical thinking skills, ability to communicate is just unparalleled. And um, she has been on my podcast before, and I'm so excited that she gets to come on and talk with us about the weapon of stand to reason. This is Amy Hall. Uh, Jim, why did you want Amy to come on tonight? Because of all the people <laughs> who I would ever have help me on a book, this is the one. If I could only get one person to help me, it'd be Amy. As yep. a matter of fact, I remember, Amy, when I when I asked you to help me, Sean McDowell, he was writing, I think, Chasing, <laughs> Chasing Love is his new book, and he was trying to get you to help him. But you had just like the day before or something had, had decided it had agreed to help me with this book. And so you were tied up. He was so upset <laughs> because he knows the same thing that I know, which is that Amy Hall is the mind behind the magic, right? I mean, uh, there's nobody who I don't think any of us who have sent a book to, to readers. Amy doesn't just read the book. Amy reads the book. And then she comes back and she says, well, here's the five areas that I don't think work. And I have learned not to argue with Amy about that. <laughs> uh, if she says, hey, you should change this line to this. You know how you get that little thing in the Word document where you just hit accept and it just changes the thing? Yeah, just accept I just go it. through it and say accept all. I start off by saying accept all. Yeah. And then I go through it and I just tell her, okay, so what, what if when she has comments, well, I have to actually yeah. like do something, okay? But if I don't have to do anything, I mean, honestly, there are times when she just says, uh, maybe you should say it this way. And I'm like, oh, dang it. Like, why didn't I think of that? That's so, so good. So I don't have a problem telling you. This is why I tried to make the point of this in the introduction of the book, um, just how essential she was to the pro process. And Susie and I would sit here. This is my office. This is where I pretty much do everything. 
And so I, we would, I, this is where I write my books. And so I was sitting here and, and Susie would sit here and um, Amy and I would go back and forth on some of these things. And she'd be, Susie would be sitting right here next to me. And we were just astonished how many times we're like, we just didn't see that better way of articulating it. Or, well, here's the, the connectivity problem in terms of logical thinking on this, or the way you've expressed it could be interpreted this way as well as that way. Here's a clearer way to express it without any confusion. Um, there's just no clearer thinker. And I'm talking about, look, Elisa, we know when we go to CIA, we end up hanging out with some of the smartest apologists that yeah. are out there. And I do send the book sometimes, my books, to some of those people. But I don't do a book unless I can send it to Amy. And I would have told the publisher I need two more weeks or a month if Amy had not been available. Because I would have had to wait for her. Yeah. <laughs> because I'm not going to submit a book uh, without her reading it first. That is very wise. Well, Amy, gosh, that's high praise. And I have to second that because, as you know, I think you're one of the smartest people that I've ever uh, met and, or encountered. But um, so when, when Jim brought this idea to you or maybe gave you some first drafts to look at, what were you thinking? You know, because you've, you've encountered, first of all, you should probably tell us a little about yourself because you work with Stand to Reason. Tell us what you do there. And then tell us a little bit about what your impression was when Jim brought this information to you. Well, I work for, yeah, I stand to reason, as you said, I mostly do writing for the website. I also do a podcast with Greg called hashtag STR ask, and I answer questions people send in. So I interact with people basically answering their questions. That's what I do. Um, I also do a lot of editing. I, I also, I help Greg with his books. Uh, like he mentioned, Sean, I, I love doing that. I love it, but I have to say, the amount of work you put in on this book, Jim, just blows me away. And I want to say that I, I thought, well, I haven't read this book in a long time because this was like almost a year ago now. Yeah. So I thought I'll, I'll just look through it this weekend and just kind of remind myself. I read the entire thing over the weekend. And what I told you, Jim, at the time is that I this is the kind of thing that apologetics needs right now. This is exactly the kind of thing because I have been praying for um, more of a sense of awe and worship for Jesus in apologetics. Cause you can mm. go to an apologetics conference and not hear a word of praise the entire mm. time. It's like, we forget yeah. why we're there. We are there to introduce people to a person. We are there to show people who he is so that they'll love him. They'll follow him. Yeah. And I've been thinking, gosh, we've really been missing some of that in the apologetics world. And I've literally been praying about that for years. And I think I told you this, Jim, I was like, this yeah. is exactly what we need. Because in this book, you see the weight of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so many times you hear, you hear atheists calling him the magic carpenter or making some sort of flippant remark about yeah. who he is and treating him like he's the Easter bunny. And every time I think, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't understand the weight of Christianity, what it's done, what it says, how it's affected people. And in this book, you bring all of that to the forefront. And I love it. I love it. So I definitely recommend it to everybody. Well, I, you know, when you say that to the way you say it, it, it makes me almost like feel like, are we missed? So I'm 60 now, and there's, t there's times when I don't want 
to do a presentation anymore that I don't get to preach the gospel. But I, there's times when it, you're a case maker, you're constantly making a case. I'm not an evangelist. But why am I not an event? Why, why, why am I separating these two ideas in my mind? I've had a chance to work in the last couple of years with Billy Graham Evangelist Association. And so like Will Graham, you know, this is Billy Graham's grandson. And, and he's an evangelist. And I realized that at some point, if, if this is not, if we're not doing this for the purpose of bringing people to Christ, then what are we doing? Um, so there's a sense in which I feel like almost bad that we have, I haven't, like, am I just now in book number eight, figuring this out? Like, like, you know, the same time well, you, I, 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 go ahead. You laid a lot of groundwork coming up to now. So all of that was important, but I think this is just yeah. the pinnacle, honestly. Well, I just, I feel like a lot of this is just trying to figure like, like I tell people all the time that if someone like me could eventually write a book and be involved in this work then anybody can. And so we have to move from being content consumers as Christians to content creators because so many of have not even exercised the gifts that God has given us to do this kind of work. And so there's a point at which I'm saying to myself, okay, so what, is, so what has God called us to do? What has God called me to do in these years, right? I mean, this is not an income thing for me. It's not a career. I don't want another career. I just want to talk about Jesus now. I'm getting older. And so I'm just trying to find new ways to talk about Jesus. But I, I lament the fact that there might be times then when you do apologetics where you're so focused on the case are so focused on the argument or responding to somebody else's case or somebody else's argument that you can get derailed and miss the point of why we're doing all this to begin with is, you know, is that case? I mean, so I've always said that we're trying to clear the roadblock, kind of clear the barriers between people and the gospel. And so to the degree to which a book like this can help do that, that's where it might have value. Um, but, but, but what I'm really trying to do is I am trying to talk about as I get older, Okay, I've moved from the evidence. I want to talk about the beauty of Jesus. Um, and I don't want to talk about that in a, in a way that doesn't seem like, like the cop in me says, a lot of cops are not going to want to hear about the beauty of Jesus. They want to know, is it true? But the reality of it is, if the truth of Jesus does not move us toward the beauty of Jesus, I don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because few of us will respond to mathematical uh, formulas. We, it's something beautiful we want to respond to. And so right I now, does that, you know, oh, sorry, right now, I think this is the biggest objection to Christianity is that Christianity is not beautiful, that God is evil, that God is bad. And I, that's what I found. Like you just watch any debate with an atheist. Ultimately, yeah. it will come down to the question of God did this ABC and these are all bad things. Mm -hmm. So we need to make this case for the goodness of God and the beauty of God. I think that is the number one thing I run into, especially with atheists. Amy, was yeah, there a specific- and For those of you who haven't heard that STR Ask podcast, you know, um, Susie, my wife Susie listens to that podcast regularly. And I have, I've got so many podcasts. I, might, I probably get to like every fifth or sixth one. So I'm not as regular as she is on anyone's podcast, but I try to listen to, especially if I'm traveling, but I can catch up. What I've been struck with, and I know that Greg's not going to listen to this, so I'm going to make this public statement about Greg Fogel, but I know no one's going to hear it. Uh, and Greg's not going to listen to it because Greg doesn't listen to anything on YouTube. So um, so I'll just say it. Um, I love the approach both of you have. You know, Greg brings Greg to every single presentation. He's thorough. He's thoughtful. He's methodical. 
Uh, you get, you really get the, he empties out the entire topic typically in any question that's asked. What I love about it is someone will call with this question or someone will give you the question on ST on uh, the Twitter and you'll read it and then you'll, he'll answer it and he'll answer it for 20 minutes. And then Amy will come out and she'll say this thing in 30 seconds. It's like, oh yeah, we could have moved on if Amy would have started. Okay. But she went right go first. This took 20 minutes. But if she had gone first, because Greg will often say, like something like, "Oh, that was a very insightful." Like, like, he, like, like you know, you nailed it. Move on to the next question. So I love to listen to Amy because she she kind of gets to the heart of it <laughs> pretty quickly, um, and and I think that the two of you together kind of are a one two punch on that show. That might be the best pairing on any apologetics podcast where you've got more than one host. That might be the best parent because you offer two different sides to the same issue. And both of you are very biblically literate, which is helpful. You know, a lot of apologists, a lot of us get in these niches where we can speak about certain niches of Christendom, but we aren't biblically literate of overall. And what I love about you guys is you, 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 have, a, you have a good a 30,000. This is why I send books to you because I know that I might have stepped off on my trail and my, I stepped out of my lane a little bit. And I need someone like you to say, hey – You've stepped too far out of the lane over here. You need to kind of pull it back. But also, you're just insightful in terms of like the very, I'll tell you one thing that, that Amy did for me is that, and I wanted to, we almost changed it. So at the end of the book, I talk about, I wanted to, like, I know on the stage how I would present this. And Zondervan was very good to me. They allowed me to, to do all the stage presentations first, two years of building stage presentations before I had to write the book. So I got to present it on the stage a number of times before. And I wanted to do that because you work out all the stupid by doing stage presentations, right? <laughs> you can kind of see, hey, this is not working. This is dying in front of an audience. You know, maybe it's time to, <laughs> I certainly can't put that in a book that way. It, it was it was terrible on the stage. So so I have to learn how to, how to present it. And I had this part in the book where I was talking about, well, Jesus matters because of that. Jesus matters because of that. Jesus matters because of that. I had a list of all the things that Jesus matters because of. And Amy looked at it and said, it's not that that's, Jesus doesn't matter because of his impact. Those things matter because of Jesus. She flipped it. And I was like, oh, man. I need to rewrite that whole section because it's so true. And I tried it. You know, I tried to rewrite it. But it just isn't, doesn't flow quite the same way. So I just made sure at the very end I, I put that observation in. Well, that's all Amy Hall. Because, um, and it's true. And I just, you know, you'll, you'll write something, you'll speak it a number of times, and you just won't see a better way to say it. And a lot of times what we're doing in a book is we're trying to find a way to say it. And I have no problem telling you all that those are Amy's words in that section because, um, you know, it's just it's, that's what makes a book better. And, and I don't claim to be, you know, I'm not C.S. Lewis. What's really frustrating is when people will quote your book, and what they're quoting is a C.S. Lewis quote that you put in your book. And they're quoting it as though it's you, but no, I put, I put, I attributed it to C.S. Lewis, but they just didn't catch that part for whatever reason. So they say, "Oh, Jim Wallace," and it's some famous C.S. Lewis quote that everyone knows is C.S. Lewis, and I looks like I'm trying to claim it for myself. Well, I've got a lot of those things that are just Amy's in that book. So. That's good. Well, Amy, I wanted to ask you. I'm really intrigued with what you were talking about. Uh, how Jim brings out the beauty of Jesus. And the one thing that I observed when, as I read it, it's it's like the lordship of Jesus too. This isn't just a religious figure. This is the Lord. This is the king of the universe. I wonder if you could just share with us one 
particular insight as you were reading this that brought that out for you? Maybe a specific example mm-hmm. of just the beauty of Jesus that you saw in this book. Um, well, it, the way I would describe it is kind of more, even more than beauty. It's the weight. It's mm. the the magnificence. I don't know if I can pick one. Like the just the overall the way it created education the the art when you look at the art and the music i think that might be the point where you just think where that really impacts me as to how weighty jesus is when you look at the architecture and the beautiful things they created you know they they needed to make a building that would be worthy of a place where you would worship jesus so they created all these different things and and stained glass windows and the flying buttresses and all these different things for that purpose and you see oh my gosh, like he, he was inspiring these things. These things reflect him. These are ways we can see his beauty and magnificence by looking at this art. So it was kind of a combination as he keeps adding the different areas where Jesus influenced, even the science, I mean, all of it. It's so many different areas. It's a complete reality. <laughs> it's all been influenced. And it's hard to explain without reading the book, just kind of the image you get of what led up to Jesus and then what came after him and just looking at that explosion and what he's done to our world. It's just, it's remarkable. And it's so original. It's so original, Jim. I'm just, I'm just so glad you decided to put the time into this. I can't even imagine how much time you put into this book. Well, it's like everything else. It really was a product of having that time in COVID where they canceled all of our events. And so I was able to really sit and, you know, it took three months to draw. Well, we didn't have events in those three months. So I was actually able to sit and illustrate every day for like seven or eight hours a day for three months to get all the illustrations in the book. But the reality of it is, isn't it interesting that we find it like all we have to do is it's like we have this diamond and it's buried in the mud. And, and all we have to do is push the mud out of the way and the diamond's exposed. And then we get credit for a diamond. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? We didn't make the, it's just, it's not our diamond. All we're doing is trying to get the mud off the diamond. And, and then mm-hmm. people will see it for what it really is and go, wow. But isn't it a shame that after all this time, the diamond's got so much mud caked around it? But I don't think we get much credit for just push, pushing the mud off the diamond. But I do think that it's hard to write a book. If I can just expose the truth about Jesus, it's going to be a good book because it's Jesus that makes it a good book. And I don't want to say that like a, like, you know, like a Sunday school kid who says, you know, what's the right answer? You know, who makes life better? Jesus. I'm not saying it that way. I, I just think that the reality of it is, is that he's such an inspirational character. And we talk about that in literature, that it doesn't take much to make him inspirational he just that's just the nature of jesus to begin with so i think what we're trying to do all of us are trying to do this is find a way to talk about Jesus. and i don't want to get caught up anymore and i think this is one of the things i thought about a lot of lisa when i talk about what's like what's the next project is is that okay i, I that was i started at 52 writing books and now i'm 60. and I, I don't need to go backwards and make that case anymore what i really want to focus on going forward is is the beauty that either is of is the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, or I can see a point also about writing fiction that restores beauty to uh, to Jesus in fiction. Um, so, so I just got to figure out like what's the next step here, because you're right. If, if we could just focus on on 
and taking the mud off the diamond, I think that we'd be in better shape. I'd be, a, it would be a, I, one of those creative challenges for me mm-hmm. that would be like, wow, that would be like a noble thing to do. Well, you know and what that's I'm kind of the hoping for me of, of like how I'm making this case. It's kind of that evolution. I'm, I, you know, Jim, I've told you this. I'm really hoping that eventually the the Lord will move upon your heart to do a graphic novel for like young teens, an apologetics graphic novel. Everybody tell Jim to write a graphic novel for young teens. Well, <laughs> and I don't so feel like great. I'm an artist enough to like. I could do some of these diagrams, and you see my my work in my books. But but I look at like like people who have done like graph like 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 uh, like graphic novels like of the Marvel or DC comic type of yeah. action and all that. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, if you don't push all all of art is like anything else, right? How many days do you spend playing your scales on the piano? How many miles have you pushed that pen? And if, and if you've pushed that pen a lot of miles, then you can do a good graphic novel. I think I've pushed the pen just enough to do the kinds of illustrations I'm doing for these books. But there's another level of stuff that you have to do if you're just making the entire thing about visual presentations, right? right just storyboarding true. that stuff is not easy. So, so there's a sense in which I wonder, do I have that in me? And when I first started this years ago, I told, when I first met Susie, I was 17, and I wanted to be an author. That's, I was in school, wanted to be an author. Oh, wow. And then I didn't, then I ended up in art. So I went that route and then I ended up in law enforcement. And now then years later, I finally come back to being an author. So I think I'll probably stay in that lane a little bit, but I always say it this way too, guys. Have you ever noticed this? I always think that nonfiction is like a cover, a cover band and fiction is like a singer songwriter, right? Like anyone can cover somebody else's hit, but writing the hit is hard. So I think us doing uh, nonfiction the way we are, where we're trying to I'm trying to kind of push that genre a little bit, but uh, my hope someday is to, to move into fiction. That'd be cool. Well, I think that's the, the bigger challenges. And then I'll well, be sending those books to you, Amy. So I'd be sorry you started this process. <laughs> I, I think that's a great idea. I've had a little fiction book in the back of my mind for a while too, that would kind of make some cool points and stuff. I think, I think that'd be a, a good uh, place for some of the apologetics writers to go, you know, to, to do that. But Amy, um, before we say goodbye to you, tell everybody where they can find you online. Remind us of the name of the podcast you're on with Greg and all that good stuff. So the website is str.org and the organization is Stand to Reason. And the podcast is hashtag strask. And that's all one word, hashtag strask. And you should be able to find it. All right. Awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. And Jim, anything else you want to say about Amy before we say goodbye? Well, and just thank you, Amy. Um, I I feel like a lot of the folks who are in the kind of behind the scenes and all they get is a a line in a special thanks to section of a book. It doesn't ever feel like it's enough. So that's why when she asked me, when Lisa asked me, Amy, who do you want on the show? I just thought, I want Amy and I want Richard because these folks have been such great contributors to my work. And I never feel like I get enough of a chance to say thank you. So I just want to say thank you publicly. And everyone, I mean, I, everyone knows us personally knows that, hey, who is the person you send your book to? It's Amy Hall. We all know that. But now the rest <laughs> of the world knows that, too. By the way, she's not available to any of you. She's busy with us. So just don't send her any manuscripts. She's busy. Okay? She's busy. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to chat with you and catch up. So thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, both of you. Yeah, All right, bye-bye. Thank you.
All right, so I promised we'd do a blitz of giveaways. We got three more books to yes. give away, and then maybe we'll we'll do a final question, and then we'll call it a night there. So yes. our blitz giveaway of three more books, we've got Faith Takes Flight. Now, we don't have your name because we just have your YouTube moniker or Facebook. So Faith Takes Flight, you've just won a copy. Congratulations. And Darren Plies, it's Darren P. P-L-I-E-S. You've just won your free copy of Person of Interest. And the final winner is Bert Steen, B-E-R-T-S-T-E-E-N. So Faith Takes Flight, Darren P. Plies, and Bert Steen. Congratulations. You've all won a copy of Person of Interest. Email. The, the email address is contact at alisachilders.com with your address, and we will get these books sent out right away. Uh, Jim, this has been such a rich conversation tonight. Um, I just, you know, what, what do you want to leave us with? This is your release day. This is the day the book comes out. This has been a, a really much anticipated um, release, especially in the apologetics community. So many of us have been waiting for this. We're excited about it. What, what would you leave us with? Just what do you want people to take away from this? Just, just leave us with some, some thoughts about it. Well, I think here's the biggest thing. Uh, if, for those of you who are reading the book, who are, we're all in the same apologetics larger community. We all love apologetics books, and we all have a tendency to kind of cobble together our library of all the latest apologetics books. And that's all good. But my real hope for this book is that it'll give you some point of conversation. The number one will magnify who Jesus is in your own mind, and then it will help you to express that beauty of Jesus to others. Um, because that's really the nature of this book. It, I, this is not a book that has like, you know, 15 points about the deity of Christ. No, this is a book that looks at the impact of Jesus in culture and argues that it's so unparalleled that it makes no sense that Jesus is anyone other than who he said he was. And so what I'm hoping is that you'll use this book to share the gospel with somebody. There's a lot of times when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, well, how would I get from the content of God's crime scene, that book I wrote about God, to the gospel, it's doable. How would I get that from the content of, of even cold case Christianity to a presentation of the gospel? I mean, that's doable too. But when I look at person of interest, I hope it's the smoothest transition you will ever have between making a case from an evidential perspective to sharing the gospel. Because I think what this leverages the beauty and the impact of Jesus in a way that the other books don't. And so I'm hoping that that's really, by the way, I think that's a much easier stepping stone to the gospel than here. There's 15 facts about the reliability of the New Testament, and then we go to the gospel. So you can know all that stuff. I just hope that this is this will open up more gospel conversations than the other books have done. And look, this is why we write books. I mean, why do we write any of these? This is, you know this, Lisa, this is the, the nichiest small market for books that you can find is the Christian apologetics niche. <laughs> Okay, that's pretty pretty narrow, and so if you're not if you're not writing these for the purpose of finding a way to help people share the gospel, shame on you. Um, that's really what we're trying to do here, right? We're trying to figure out a way to help people move from what we know is true to a gospel presentation with our friends. Yeah, and so I'm just hoping this book will be helpful in that regard. Yeah, it's like Norm Geisler talked about apologetics being pre-evangelism. It's not; it, it doesn't yes. replace the gospel, but it can clear those obstacles 
that can so That's someone right. can take a clear look at the at the cross and at the gospel. Okay, so so leave us with where people can get the book, and there's okay. ten days left on the pre-order. Yeah. Uh, sort of. So pe- some people are going to be listening to this after that ten day uh, period has expired. But yes. tell us about both of this. So if you're listening after that point, you can still get the book and get all yes. the. Uh, you can get I think the PDF too. So tell us about all that. Yep. So uh, we just go to personofinterestbook.com. There's a person of interest movie, there's a person of interest series, there's a person of interest everything. It's a very common term in, in, in law enforcement and in uh, detective work. But at personofinterestbook.com is just ours. So if you'll go to that website, you'll see the offers that, that's there. Yes, we have an offer that we're extending through October 1st. But let me tell you how my heart on this is. I always develop a bunch of visual materials that I use that I want to give away for people who will use the book and teach it at their level set. So I'm working with Zondervan to figure out, okay, so look, if I can develop a package of teaching materials that I can deliver for free, is there a way I can do that? So I want you to go back and check with that. What I will do is anyone who's ordered the book and has asked for the pre-order offer, if we get some kind of a larger package of teaching materials, I will automatically send you an email with that link. So you will never miss anything that we're going to offer downstream. But I just haven't really figured out what that's going to be yet. So what we are offering at this point is an ebook, a uh, video, Bible inserts, and some discounts that you can get uh, by going and ordering the book now. And I know a lot of that stuff is going to go away forever. I'm just trying to figure out what else can I offer afterwards that will help you teach the book. But I guarantee you that offer, those materials will not be part of that. So if you wanted those, like now is the time to get it. But be honest, look, if you if this has been a blessing to you um, and it will help you share the gospel, then, then whenever you get it, it's fine with me. And, and then maybe you want to wait until you hear if it's any good at all. <laughs> so I, that's why I love the fact that you would do this for me, Elisa, because I think people will start to come online here in the next couple of weeks and hopefully share if it's been of any value to them. Yeah. And then that'll help people make a decision about whether they go forward with it. And I'll just add this too. If you've gotten the book on Amazon, it really helps authors out if you'll leave a review on oh, Amazon no because it definitely helps. It kind of triggers, from what I understand, Amazon to to put that in the recommended resources if somebody chooses a book that's similar and they see that, oh, people like this book. So if you've if you've purchased the book on Amazon and you like it, you just can go leave, you know, a hundred words. It can be short and sweet, just what you liked about the book and why you think it's valuable for other people. It's really helpful for authors when you do that. So definitely do that if you've done that today. Day. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being here. It was such a so much fun to talk with you always, and um, I just I hope everybody gets goes out and gets this book. Well, I'm so indebted to you. I just, you know I'm a, a pretty much technological newbie on this kind of stuff. So <laughs> when you offered to do this, I'm like, wow. Well, thanks because I know how I could have done it on my own. So thank you for doing this. I really I owe you one. No, not at all. No, you don't owe me anything. This was my joy and uh, just a privilege to get to do it because I really believe in this book. I think it's amazing. I think everybody should go out and get it. So everybody watching, thank you so much for for hanging out with us tonight. Stay tuned on the channel for more great live streams. We're going to be talking with Ryan Anderson next month about his book, When Harry Became Sally, important book about the transgender uh, sort of moment that we're in as a culture. Of course, always like and subscribe. That's all helpful. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye-bye, everybody. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.